Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm a writer and I live in New York. This is my best friend Stephanie. I'm also a writer and I live in Dublin. Although there is a physical separation of 3,000 miles, that has not stopped us remaining best friends. I think it's slightly more than 3,000 miles, but we'll let that slide. We speak, on average, twice a day. Probably text every day, and we speak most days, I would say. You probably want less, but I always want more. (laughs) We are best friends, and we want to explore the concept of friendship and relationships. So in this series, we're going to look at different types of relationships. Ones that we were maybe born into. Some that we were thrust into. Or forced into. Some that we were forced out of. And some that we chose. They're all situationships. Welcome to the show. So today we are talking about enemies. Which are, you know, the other side of the same coin as friends, I think. Because they can be like little rivalries or opponents or they can become kind of hostile. And mostly I think what we're talking about are in the almost frenemies category. You know, I don't know that since we've been alive, there has been like two people in the public eye that if they saw each other, they would kill each other, hate, you know, hate each other that much. But there's celebrity feuds and there's uh, kind of showbiz enemies, as it were. But it's the same as friendship where, you know, you always say that that friend is too generic a term. Maybe enemy is as well. Yeah, they're probably like gradient scales of enemies, like a level one enemy and a level 10 enemy. I also think that there probably are enemies that you've just described that we don't know because we're not that politically plugged in. True. Let's look at that. Welcome to the show. So uh, enemies, I think the first time when in your life, when you are young, you make your first friend and you make your first enemy. And your first friend is usually based on like, you have red shoes, I have red shoes, let's be friends. You know, it, it doesn't take much to bring you together with somebody. And I think the same is true of enemies. Did you have any enemies on the playground or like when you yeah. were little? And actually, my first enemy is now one of my oldest friends. Um, Julie is her name. And we bought, my mum bought her grandparents' house. And we moved in there. Oh, so you really usurped her grandparents. Right. And so we were in junior infants and she didn't understand the concept of like sale by private treaty (laughs) and that her grandparents actually wanted to sell their house. And we were happy and they were happy to receive the money. Um, But her grandparents had a vegetable patch in the garden and my mother did up the garden and the vegetable patch was gone. And Julie saw this and was like, she ignored me in the yard. She spilled my milk. She stole my bun. Now we're really good friends and we <laughs> laugh about it. And it's also kind of cool that like I live in the house that her mum grew up in, that she also had her early childhood in. But yeah, she was my first enemy. And I just couldn't understand why someone would like not like me without ever me ever doing anything to them. Because it seems abstract that you didn't like hurt her. She just hated you for reasons that were beyond your control. Yeah, but now I understand it because... I don't have a lot of enemies now, but I am a I'm very aware that like I am some people's enemy. Well, you live life in the public eye and so there are people who have access to you in terms of your output, your social media, your the work that you make and they don't know you as a person and so they can hate you or be your enemy based on Things that are beyond your control. Yeah, and I'm using enemy in the term like, it, you know, sometimes they're kind of hostile because Twitter allows them to be. But it's just this sort of adversarial 
connection that we have where it's like, you don't know me, but you've decided for some reason that I am unpalatable. Well, I decided for what was a very good reason at the time when I was about six or seven that this girl, Catherine Robertson, was my enemy. And so basically I grew up on a cul-de-sac and I had one friend and it was maybe her seventh birthday party. I was a year younger and I gave her a birthday card that I had written myself and it said to my best friend, Brona, I am so happy that you're my best friend. I love you. Happy birthday or something like that. And when she opened it, she said, you have to hide this because you're my second best friend. Catherine is my first best friend. And if she sees that, it'll hurt her feelings. And I was crushed. I could feel my heart like sinking down to the core of the earth. And I decided in that moment, she is my enemy. And it feels so silly saying that now because... Kat is a wonderful graphic designer and actually designed the poster for the first play that I ever wrote. And I have massive respect for her as a professional and now would regard her at least as a friendly acquaintance. So we're going to talk to her and I'm going to confront my childhood enemy. Oh my God. Catherine, hello. Hi. Hello, nice to meet you, Regent's enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Strong words. Do you remember this? Do you remember this birthday party? I remember many, but not the specific event. I'm actually slightly flattered that Brona thought of me that way at six. (laughs) You were so high in her esteem. Well, this was my instinct, which is that Brona had this fear. Kat probably would have had no issue with you calling her. Like, would you, do you think your childhood self would have had an issue with Rachel calling herself Brona's best friend? Well, possibly. Maybe not at six, but in the years to follow. So what do, do you ever remember me like trying to get stuck in there with Brona's friendship and trying to usurp you? Because I definitely was trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember you as being the girl down the street. Uh, you lived on the same street as Brona. And I suppose instead of more enemies, it was more this kind of rival jealousy mm. of the girl that lived in such close proximity to Brona. I was closer. (laughs) You were closer. And uh, like in the evenings, if I would want to kind of be like, come home from school and go and play and meet up with Brona, mum would be like, no, no, you can't. Too late. Knowing that you guys are probably out playing on the street. Oh, yeah. We were having so much fun. It's more of a jealousy. Rachel, stop being a bitch. Even now. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to (laughs) win. Okay, you've won, okay? (laughs) It's your radio show. But that that sense of uh, feeling so insecure, like even as a kid or feeling like there's this rivalry I mean, because in my mind, you were like, you were secure and I was the one kind of knocking on the friendship gate of the castle, being like, let me in, let me in. But you were a little bit jealous as well. That kind of makes me happy. A little bit, yeah. Well, for many reasons. One, proximity. And two, you'd hear like Brona talking about all the great fun you had over the weekend when I wasn't there. And it's kind of like early stage fear of missing out, I think. You're kind of like, these guys have been having fun without me what if they continue to have more fun and I get replaced pre-pubescent FOMO a little are bit are you still friends with Brona yes very yeah. much so are you, which of you is more friends with Brona now well I live on the other side of the world so probably you yeah but you're best friends with me and I live on the other side of the world <laughs> it's no excuse I'd say we're equals now probably I equals I think all this how often do you speak to Brona probably not enough not enough at all but I could keep up I try to keep up with her as much as I can actually seeing her tomorrow so she so. confide in you. You saw her yesterday, didn't you? 
Two days ago. <gasps> it's not a competition well, anymore. Well, it clearly is, and it always but has been. This, so I think probably the last time I saw you was like, Brona's not, because it was, it was mostly at birthday parties, was probably like her ninth or tenth birthday party. Then I don't think I saw you for years. You had been away as well. I remember yeah. that. Uh, and then you came back. You gone to America. Were you secretly delighted, like, out of the picture? A little bit. <laughs> I remember thinking that. And I'm thinking, yes, I have all to myself. But then when you came back, yeah, it was a little bit, oh, no. And But also, you'd kind of been to America. You'd, like, lived in this cool place. And you had lots of great stories. And Yeah, yeah but I remember hearing from Brona that you got a bra. <laughs> and being so jealous, like, oh, she's won again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. I think Brona is the issue here. Brona's clearly playing you guys off each other. We should other. have Brona here talking to we us. We should have got her in. But I think that maybe it was that competition for attention or competition for affection. But it all changed then, obviously, because this was when we were small. And Yeah, it looks like it's really changed. <laughs> But then there was a, a time uh, when I was putting on a play uh, that was we needed to get a poster and we needed a graphic designer for this theatre company I'd set up. And I was asking Brona, like, do you know any graphic designers? What am I going to do? And she said, well, Kat just finished college and she's really good. You should contact her. And I was a bit like, oh, but, oh what if, oh, well, what's going to happen? And so I did. And were you like, did you have a, a moment of being like, I don't want to help her? No, not at all. I think this is what one of the things I'm thinking about when we're talking about these rivalries is I think it all gets erased over time. Yeah. I was actually, if anything, I was more flattered that somebody um, who I, I bet you did think very highly of would ask me. And clearly I was worthy. You were worthy. Time. And then you won the best poster of the Fringe, right? Yeah. That was her one. That was, so the, yeah. the poster that you designed for Lipstick won best poster at the Edinburgh Fringe and it was like everyone was like where'd you find your graphic designer and I was like oh she's my childhood enemy but now I think she's great <laughs> yeah you're like you're famous in theatre land <laughs> no semi no <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah semi for sure and it, I think that and it's so it, it feels so silly now to think like oh you know I that I ever thought of you as an enemy because then I thought of you so highly well I didn't think you thought of me as an enemy when I uh, when I mean, you I asked me it, about the show I kind of gasped it was like <gasps> enemy it's like 25 years ago you're kind of like I had an enemy yeah, 25 years ago <laughs> but I think all those things just wear off as, and as you've already touched upon it there uh, earlier it is it is essentially just petty when you're kids it's about toys it's about time and as you kind of grow up and experience more experienced people more experienced relationships more you realize that all those things just don't matter and it's almost like slates wipe clean a bit and silly little rivalries like that but that's all it is when you boil it down to it. It's just a silly little rivalry that then you strip it back and it's like, oh, actually, I feel like in some ways I probably have more in common with you than with Brona. Yeah, maybe we should hang out more. Definitely. I'll let you up next time I'm home. I'm See flying later, back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys can hang out and I'm going to go and hang out with Brona. <laughs> so that's you and your first enemy. I don't think that I have any current enemies, but I do have friends who I am constantly afraid may someday turn into enemies. And if they ever were to turn into enemies, they have an awful lot of information. So it could go really, really sour really quickly. And it could go even more sour if they have a particular platform where they could share this information. Do you have someone in mind, Stephanie? I do. Welcome to the studio, Brendan O'Connor. Hello. My friend and hopefully never enemy. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) 
We're not enemies, right? I would consider us friends or friendly acquaintances. Absolutely. Friends in the business. Yeah, friends in the business. And we're business. I I actually, I think what it is, is that we're possibly coming from a quite similar place so that we recognise each other in the business, which is full of kind of people who are in many ways more less from Cork and more extrovert and more sociopathic than we are. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we have, sl- <laughs> we, uh, I would say that we understand each other. Would that be a fair characterization of yes, our relationship? Yes, which I think mm-hmm. is a great foundation for friendship, but it also means that there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, like. Yeah, but you're tricky as hell too, you know. Why? Oh, you're very tricky. There's a kind of a slippery I'd be nervous. quality. I'd be nervous of you too. I'd be nervous of getting on the wrong side of you now. Do you think that that tension of, okay, you know that Stephanie can, she holds her ground with certain things and she has her opinions, as do you, that that creates an environment for healthy respect? Or is it an environment of fear? It's certainly an environment of like dancing around. But I don't know why you're afraid of me. I think actually like as well, you're quite sensitive, you know. I'm highly sensitive. Be careful about that, you know. Are you? I would be quite sensitive, yeah. yeah. Rachel is my best friend. Are you friend. sensitive, Rachel? Uh, no, I'm generally on the more oblivious spectrum. I don't always notice uh, a lot of things. Okay. And actually, Brendan, I have composed emails to you, uh, which on Stephanie's behalf, because when she's I've too nervous. You're her <laughs> Serrano diversion. Why, well, you <laughs> see, I, I actually find this slightly unfair in the sense that you, so you're like kind of acting slightly victim-y around me. As if, like, I, you were too nervous to write the emails and all that. Like, it's a kind of a thing of what? That I am part of the patriarchy. No, when, like, not at all. So, like, what have I done except, I think, be quite supportive of you and So and supportive. And try but to be helpful and everything. But it's because I am, it's because I am a man that you're waiting for the other shoe no. to drop and for me to do some. So even when the patriarchy are nice, you're just waiting for us to be typical This has patriarchy. nothing to do with gender. I've composed emails for Stephanie to women as well. Actually, mostly to women. Mostly to women. um, For probably your, the reasons you were suggesting. But I, it's nothing to do with your gender. It's to do with your job and also your, your platform and how, because you have been so supportive of me for reasons that I don't, you know, that I sometimes feel I haven't earned, you know, where I'm like, God, Brendan is so nice to me and I, and I, and, and, and I appreciate it so much that on a whim, like if I do the wrong thing, you could be, equally not nice in 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 as intense a way or in as <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah, like yeah like you give me so much but you could also then be like right I'm gonna take this one down not that you ever would or but I have you see I think that says more about that says a lot about you like that oh yeah if somebody is if if good things are happening you're waiting for a bad thing to happen like mm. but you know this yeah. about me I've often mm. Been yeah. in touch with you being like, Brendan, I'm freaking out because a good thing is happening. And you're yeah. like, oh, would you yeah. ever get over yourself? But there's yeah. also the power that you have in your job as See, an opinion yeah, maker. I don't view it as power. I don't no? view myself as an opinion maker. No, it's funny. Like, I think it's in you. So you look at me from maybe you perceive yourself to be f- a, a rung down on the ladder or something Several, or whatever. Yeah. And, and But like, I just consider myself to be another cog in the wheels of, you know, and there's the real masters of the universe are above it. So I don't, I don't view myself as having power. 
But I also think that I give you a lot of power that you haven't necessarily asked for. You see, like, this is what I would say. You, and I think you give people power. Not you, one, gives give people, people power. But you I also give people power. have a lot of respect for you. So like when I'm writing for your magazine, sometimes I think of the audience in general, but generally it's like, I would love for Brendan to read this and be like, this is great. And when that happens, I'm like, oh, yes. But that's, then I have to. That's write. very nice. It's that's, yeah, that's lovely. It's a bit, a bit of a responsibility, but it's lovely. But like the thing is, as well, have I ever kind of said anything wasn't or anything or have I ever? No, but there have been sometimes where you're like, control you we can improve on this, which is that's your job, like, you know, and then I aspire but the fear to that. But maybe at the beginning, you. like I might have given you a yeah. few notes, but I would tend not to, you know, I think if somebody knows what they're doing, they know what they're doing. I'm not writing it, you're writing it, you know. Like, I generally, honestly, don't think that I exert any power or control over people. Like, if people are any good, they, they do it. I go, thank you very much. And then there's also Sticking the dynamic the on things like The Cutting Edge or on TV where, you know, I would come to you with, like, some stories just because we're friends. And then a topic comes up in The Cutting Edge and we have this dance of, like, is he going to say that thing? Is he going to say that thing? Or we're like dancing around each other and it just means that like when you you're mean a thing I know about you that is necessarily like, publicly known for, yeah 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 but of course I'm not like, no of course you're not but no, there is no. this sort of dance yeah that so you this do. is I think what we're getting here Rachel is mm-hmm. this is all in Stephanie's head but you're, you're also you're <laughs> tormenting yourself with <laughs> but like, you're look, also we, in I, the game we all do it like you're tormenting yourself with things that are never going to happen like was there a yeah. point for you professionally where you stopped doing what Stephanie's now doing and and you started going, okay, I have to just trust some of these professional alliances and some of these friendships that they are going to protect me. No, no, no. I wouldn't trust anyone. See? See? That's what I'm just trying to dance between this innate, I want to trust and I do trust you. You can trust me. Yeah, but you see, I, come on, Brent. Why would I trust? That? Why would I trust any of them? Like, I mean, you, you know, I mean, we won't get into my whole story, but I have no reason to trust any of any of these people. So like, basically, are we all not in kind of in media and show business in general? We're all in transactional relationships where we're kind of using each other. And, and as, as is it Ivan Yates always says, like, you know, friendships are temporary alliances and everything. I think in this game, like it's particularly kind of kind of I do think there's a higher proportion of sociopaths. In it, mm, yeah. in broadcasting probably. and media than there probably is in the general population, right? And and so they're all very good at kind of pretending to be friends and everything, but really, like, I think... But I think we're saying the same thing, which is Ivan's yeah. thing of, like, it's a temporary alli- allegiance. Did you say allegiance? Alliance, alliance yeah, alliance that's what he says. That, uh, but how temporary? So I'm constantly like, Brendan is my friend. Yeah. I hope he's still my friend. I hope I haven't said something or done something that means he's going to be I will like, tell you no. if you displease me. Yeah, but what are you going to tell me in a national newspaper? Are you going to send me no, a friendly like, text I message? I don't abuse my platform. I wouldn't do that. But no, have you ever... So I tell do. you in a series of nasty, <laughs> long texts. There you go. That Rachel will read because <laughs> I'll be too afraid. She'll compose Caring the replies then. I'll write the reply to you. Yeah. But how do you deal then? Obviously, you've you've just been in the game a little bit longer and you've probably had incidences where... You've had to tell yourself this is not personal. You know, if you have 
an incident with a reporter, yeah. with a journalist, how do you navigate that? Because I'm watching Stephanie. Oh, like, I mean, if, if something happens and I have an incident, like, I hate those fuckers then like, for a while, <laughs> you know? And I, and I, like, I need a while before I kind of go, okay, and it doesn't matter. But I hate them passionately at the time for certain things and everything. And, you know, sometimes I'll even write the email. I won't send the email. I'll write the email or write the text or whatever. But I'll I never send it. But, you know, it's enough to write it. Uh, and then you can't know. But I do I less and less, I think, you know, less and less do yeah. I get bothered by it. When I when I started working um, in RT a long time ago, I started, it must have been Dumfrey the Gondolas or something. And somebody I know who had a very wise old man who'd spent a lot of time here and everything, um, who was in production, said to me, you know, just one thing, don't ever let them break your heart because he said, Dave, I've seen so many people broken by them. Yeah. And just once you decide, okay, I'm not going to let them get to me, you know, because like, never mind me having the power. Like, it's, these are the people with the power, you know. But once you go into it, that mentality, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let them hurt me. Like, I'm never, I'm never going to, I'm never going to, like, care enough on a personal level for it to hurt. And I've kind of, I think I do have managed to largely stick by that. The, I've n- I don't think I've ever got upset or wanted to cry. I think I've got really angry at times, but briefly. And then I've moved on very pragmatically and gone, OK, so where do we go from here, you know? And that is what, because I... Um, it's an awful way to be when you think about it, isn't it? Well, it kind of is, yeah. like, but it, you're teaching... I like, I'm only figuring this out now as we talk, which I think is really interesting. Mm. This is a really interesting conversation to have. Um, maybe it's not like maybe people will say that just sounds like three people kind of three narcissists having two narcissists <laughs> and Rachel having a circle <laughs> jerk. Right. But actually, I think this is quite a real conversation to be having. Yeah. I probably trust the audience more than I trust the, the colleagues the in colleagues. a way, you know, mm-hmm. Even but I guess half the audience probably hate me but I'm never going to know that you know <laughs> yeah because you stay away from the social yeah, media because I don't look do you look still no well you keep telling me not to but of she course does. sometimes I do yeah she does mm. and I have to hear about you probably it. have to your generation <laughs> like I mean we don't have to but we kind of yeah we kind of have to but they're definitely capable of breaking my heart at the moment like they are but I think they could be real enemies what the 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 place where all of this comes from is that you have to let the person decide whether or not they like what you're doing. And when we when we're talking about the word enemies, usually when you don't like somebody, it's because you've already decided for them whether or not they like you or what you're doing. Do you and reckon? So, yeah. Yeah. Because when, say, Steph is waiting for feedback from you for for an article, she's or anyone or anyone, she's building herself up and going, OK, what do I do if they say no? And she's trying to pre-deal with the emotion before it comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's yeah. making the decision that she's already been rejected. And I yeah. know that whenever I don't like somebody, it's because on some subconscious level, I've already decided for them that they don't like me. Because as yeah. you've said, giving somebody the chance to not like you or to not like your work or even just disagree with you it's is risky. really, really risky. It's terrifying. Yeah. Enemy is actually, it's a very major role that you're casting someone in. Yeah. Yes. Do you know what I mean? You're giving them actually huge power. You're then. an enemy. Yeah. Instead Make them of being be like a, a lower level character. They don't have to be a big player. Look, your nemesis. Like, you're, look, look, how important is a nemesis? Like, and your nemesis is you're practically making them one of the closest people, people to, to you. you. If you, Yeah, you're right. Just make them spear mm. carrier too. 
That's so interesting because what you said earlier about if you don't care, they can't hurt you. Like it's come right back around that you just have to care a little bit less and manage it, you know. And as you say, don't give them the power. Yeah. Don't give them the power. And Stephanie, don't give me the power. Okay. Because with great power comes great responsibility. And you don't want the power. You're managing me now. You're just managing me. Well, thank you for coming in, friend Thank you of very mine. much. Thank you. I think there are some people whose job means that they are in like moral negative equity simply because like they are public enemy just because of their job. You know, some kind of politicians. Do you think that that's necessary? You know, that you have public enemies where it's a good thing for the collective group of society to have someone to say, we don't well, I think like it's them. been happening since like Zacchaeus in the Bible, you know, the tax man <laughs> and like everyone hated him and he hit up a tree. But I think uh, clampers are this sort of public enemy where like no one likes a clamper. Even the word clamper, like you have to clench your jaw to get it out. And I feel like people spit it out when they say the clamper has got me. So we went to talk to a clamper. And you know what's really unsatisfying is when someone who you've all decided is an enemy is actually very nice. And it's hard to then keep up the delusion that clampers are inherently evil. But let's hear from Trevor. I wouldn't say they're never happy to see see us, you know, like people do put in requests for say if their driveway's blocked or something like that, or if you've come in to walk and you can see here the road is fairly busy, if the parking isn't checked, you're not gonna get a spot outside your job where you walk. So yeah, there there's days when people don't wanna see us, you know, and they're unhappy to see us, but it's not all the time, you know, it's it would be it'd be less than you think. So do you ever have to talk them down when you actually get there or are they always kind of quite calm? No, if they've paid, nine times out of ten they're always calm. People just accept it because they know either they've been parked in a clearway, they're in the bus lane, they can't deny it. They know they left the car there, they made a mistake, they're after getting caught, they just accept it. But yeah, there is there is occasions where somebody come back screaming at you, shouting at you. When you're in the job, I'm in the job 15 years, it's like a water off ducks back. It is what it is. Nine times out of ten you don't see the person, the person won't be there. They may be there. Um, Hiding. No, they may be there when you go to declamp it, when you're going to take that's it off. I mean. yeah. They've made payment at that stage, you know, and nine times out of ten, they've expressed how they feel over the phone to the person taking the payment. So when we get there, they might be looking for some advice of us as to what to do the next time to stop them being clamped, as opposed to still annoyed with us when we when we get back to declamp them, you know. Okay. You know. And- what happens when you are about to put a clamp on and someone runs up and it's like, no, no, that's my car. How do you negotiate that setup? If the clamp's not locked, we won't put it on. We'll take it straight off. If you've just locked it and someone's like, please, oh man, please, I actually beg you, like, please, would you? Is there any discretion? Like, There's not really. We walk off, I said, uh, clearly defined rules from DCC. They set the rules and the rules are present there. If the clamp is locked, the clamp says on. And yeah, well, what we do is then we'll explain the appeals procedure. Knowing if the person is unhappy at that stage, which they may be because they just, you know, they just missed out on probably getting it, getting away and driving the car away. We'll just explain how to make payment, and then if they feel that they're hard done by, they can appeal it then. 
I know all this. I've had all this explained to me when I've gotten camped, and I'm always like, please, yeah. I'm yeah. right here. <laughs> I'll be your best friend. That, that means the guys are doing the job then. And they just don't want new friends. That's, that's what Facebook's for, isn't it? <laughs> Would you not rather be my friend than my enemy? You know, sure. Nine times out of ten, I won't see you again. Do you know what I mean? Like the chances of me seeing you again is very slim. Except that I constantly park in the wrong place. That's not a good admission. <laughs> not gonna work. Park legally, yeah. How can I get away with parking illegally? You um, can't. And that's what I loved about that conversation is that the way he looks at it is he's providing a service. I'm providing a service. I'm doing my job. Like I don't make the rules. Dublin City Council makes the rules. And they also do so, so the traffic moves freely and everybody can go home at the end of the day. And it was really like, oh, so you're not like out there clamping people out of spite. Yeah, you kind of want this illusion of them like hiding in the bushes waiting for some poor person With to make a rent, mistake. So they can be like, ah, I got you. And also, I guess he's right. Like, he's not making victims of people. They're make, They're breaking the law and he's providing a service. And he did give the example of... Uh, you know, anywhere you go where there is clamping in progress, the signs are everywhere. No one's trying to trick you. It's not a secret. A lot of the time, the animosity is kind of misplaced. You know, people are judging him. That happens to everybody, right? It happens and it's so, so hard to update your information. Sometimes you just don't want to, you know? It's like, I have decided that you are going to be mean. So stop being nice because I don't want to have to like update my information about this perceived threat that no. you are. And a lot of what we're talking about with the, these professionals, they're they're not real enemies. You know, at best, they're just people we're afraid of. But I think a good example of two arch enemies, like maybe even nemesis, nemesises? Nemeses. Nemeses would be Ian Paisley and, and Martin McGuinness. And Martin McGuinness. They hated each other for years and they were like literally the night and the day. So to find out a bit more about how they went from enemies to friends, we're going to talk to RTE's Tommy Gorman. They had an awful lot of baggage. Uh, Martin McGuinness had been in the IRA. Ian Paisley had terrified a lot of moderate nationalists. Uh, He was quite a ferocious figure. He was known all around the place uh, as, I suppose, the bogeyman. So Martin <laughs> McGuinness would have not come face to face with Ian Paisley on a day-to-day basis, but he would have considered Ian Paisley his sworn enemy and uh, Ian Paisley would have seen Martin McGuinness as an IRA gunman. I think an important thing to take into account about how they became friends, it, is, it was miraculous fr- from the beginning. In Paisley's uh, terms, what happened to him was he was very, very ill. There's, mm-hmm. there's famous footage of a, a time he went across to talks in Leeds Castle in the south of England and he was so ill that his doctors wouldn't let him take the plane. And Ian Paisley at that stage thought he was dying and he looked like he was dying. And I think it was on his way back that he went to see a consultant in Glasgow uh, and he was advised that he should change his medication and this might help, might, might bring about a dramatic improvement in his health. And that's exactly what happened. So Ian Paisley, suddenly, this man who had very deep religious beliefs, very fundamentalist in his beliefs, 
he saw that he had a second chance, maybe a final chance in his life to do something. Hmm. Martin McGuinness, on the other hand, for years and years, McGuinness had been ageing his way from the IRA campaign towards politics. But he couldn't get the opportunity to get into that space where he could offer the hand of friendship to the worst, the most extreme of the enemies, the DUP. And that magic began to happen through circumstances from about 2003, 2004 onwards. And tell us what their friendship looked like. It was amazing in many respects because um, Paisley was much older than Martin McGuinness and they had equal responsibility in their jobs. Uh, They were equals in the role of First Minister and Deputy First Minister. That Deputy First Minister is a bit of a misnomer. And Paisley used to refer to McGuinness as my deputy, (laughs) uh, as if he was the number two. And McGuinness used to take that and never challenged it because I think he was so happy (laughs) that they were getting on well together. He was pinching himself. He couldn't believe that we're making progress together. And I think there was quite a... It was quite a romantic side, a sentimental side to McGuinness. McGuinness was really, really delighted that progress was being made. McGuinness was very, very idealistic in some respects. And I think part of him felt the opportunity would never come. So when he found himself on centre stage with Ian Paisley, when he found himself uh, starting, ringing the bell to, to start another day's trading in the New York Stock Exchange, or going to the White House with them together. And they were absolutely box office because it really was like a script made in Hollywood that you had Paisley, the leader of unionism, and McGuinness, the IRA man, on the stage together. In some respects, they were more like father and son mm. uh, rather than people of the same age. But the chemistry between them, it was it was quite extraordinary. Were they actually friends outside of the public eye? With McGuinness and Paisley, I think they were really comfortable in the relationship. I think it was like people who never thought this would happen. And now that it was happening, they were extremely comfortable embracing it. It wasn't feigned. Right. Uh, It certainly wasn't put on. It was very, very genuine. And they would tell stories about each other. And in some respects, they were living the dream. But were... Were there devout followers and fans and uh, people in the parties, were they as as tickled by all this or was there a little bit of public backlash of, hang on now, you can't set this up as let's all hate Ian Paisley or let's all hate Martin McGuinness and then change your mind because, you know, did people have whiplash over this kind of thing? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's a, a very good question. Um, and I suppose inevitably... There were uh, people in Ian Paisley's party who were most uncomfortable with the notion of the Chuckle Brothers. That was a phrase that was coined Mm. by Jerry Moriarty from the Irish Times. Uh, And there were some of Ian Paisley's followers who had, you know, gone with them on the journey and who were quite used to Ulster says no and never, never, never. And were quite delighted when he he was against the Good Friday Agreement. And they found it a bit uh, too hard to stomach that he was going around with this IRA man, Martin McGuinness. Can the effects of that, I mean, I know obviously they they successfully ran Northern Ireland for a couple of years there, but did, did does that still have effects? Like, do you think that solving their animosity towards each other and moving into friendship has kind of had a ripple effect? I like to think it, it was the time when the society turned the corner. On a personal level, 
Their friendship continued right up to Ian Paisley's death in 2014. Some of Ian Paisley's family were the people who mourned Martin McGuinness when he died. Uh, So I think certainly that legacy continues. Um, I think what they managed to do, and maybe this applies to a lot of friendships, is they managed to bring out the best sides in Mm. each other. They tempered each other. They really did. Uh, And you could sense it from them that they, for a lot of their lives, they didn't expect to be in that place. They were grateful for the contribution made by the other and they were very, very conscious of it. So there was a convenience factor involved in the chemistry. Enemies, this one is a minefield. I think we need to get straight in with our resident psychologist, Alison Keating, who is back in Situationships Towers. Welcome, Alison. Hello. So, you have been listening to us talk about our enemies. Mm -hmm. What has struck you? Hmm. Do you think we are petty, illogical fools? No, I don't. Um, Because it feels silly. I know, but you know what? My ears prick up when I hear silly. It's that inherent sense that I shouldn't feel the way I do, but you do. So Mm. when people say to me, you know, something silly or I feel so ridiculous, I just... I sit up and take notice because even as a child, and I suppose even more so as a child, there's, there's, there's nothing else clouding it. You're just fully aware that in terms of your friend as a resource, if there's someone else taking part of your friend pie, <laughs> you're like, no, no, I want to be the favorite. And, and I mean, you went and you made the, you know, made the beautiful card. And then, well, in, in essence, she rejected you to your face. And that is really, really hard. People inherently want to be popular and liked. And I think, I think it's, it's not just about it at a, at a very kind of surface level. It's so deep that it's that sense of they actually like me, they accept me. And I think that comes in from a very, very early age. Like if you go back down to it, like think of your first friend, often it is around four, you know, um, that you met them in the schoolyard and it's just that sense of belonging and I think it's very evolutionary in terms of you will survive if you're kind of in even if it's just two of you or you're in a group and so those dynamics are there from the get-go and we all want to be accepted and liked. We do and that's obviously what makes us be friends with each other but then why does it feel so so good sometimes to hate on people and you know it happened a lot more say in secondary school where if it's a teacher or a girl that you didn't like and then all it takes is for one person to say I don't really like that person and then everybody else loves to jump on board and say yeah and you know what and they have a big bitch fest and everybody starts complaining why does it feel so good to be part of that side of things because you're connecting with the other ones you're in the gang And if you, you know, that's why at the core, if we take this to a different level completely, that's why bullying is propagated. Because even if you don't agree, like say you don't enjoy hating on everyone and you're kind of like, actually, God, I feel really bad. You're out. If you stand up for that person, you are going to actually be, you're cast out as well. Because, you know, you've now, you've now joined allegiance with that person. The lovely thing about an enemy psychologically in your head is it's coherent. And you go, well, this makes sense. That person is bad. I don't like them. And then you can put all those negative feelings onto that person. And I suppose when you think of it at a a political level, that's what actually happens is that, you know, nothing bonds people or a nation together easier. Like a common enemy. Yeah. You know, with like 
what we were talking about earlier, my sort of fear with Brendan. Yes. That this friendship, like that the more I invest in a friendship, I am providing armor for the moment it may become, or I'm providing ammunition sure. for the moment it may become an enemy ship. What, what I thought was really interesting is just that you are so honest. And I think a lot of people, it's not, it's not even that they're honest, but they don't see their blind spots. Okay. Whereas I think you do. So that's, if we look at all this kind of in one big circle, that's what a mentor can do sometimes, or a really good friend or a sister. They can actually say, do you know what? You actually did a really bad job with that, you know. Um, <laughs> and, Without and, turning into an enemy. Yeah, uh, but it, it, it's the context. It's how, it's the tone. It's how it's given and it's the intent. If you know that person's on your side, because the more you invest in any relationship, and especially if, if it feels of one that's somewhat precarious, specifically within the media, where, you know, you put your fears out there and in one way, it's all about trust. I heard a thing once about enemies or even just people that you don't like, that it's because on a subconscious level, you've already decided that they've rejected you. And so you're protecting yourself from that hurt. Is that kind of what we do when we have these enemies or even frenemies? Mm. Either they've given us some signal that they're going to reject us or we're just operating from a place of fear. And so that's why we we push them away and we say, OK, well, that, that's my enemy. So that keeps us safe. I mean, if we take it at two levels, at a very kind of shallow level, when you look at all the, the, the celebrity rivals that I think probably are PR generated, um, you know. But it's because often they are doing the same type of thing. So it's that comparison. And rather than actually, if, if, if they feel ultimately that this person will reject them, then I'll just reject you first. And that's kind of classic case, you know, I'll get there in before you. But in that respect, I don't think it's healthy. I'm not sure how that actually serves you well. I can see at a, at a national level sometimes how people are manipulated through fear-mongering, um, through politics, um, and either you are on my side or, or this side. And again, I think that's just too black and white. It's too polar. Which is why it was probably very confronting when Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley decided to you know, unite and become friends for their followers to be like, hang on a second. Oh, their like, head would have been absolutely melted. Just, yeah, 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 you know, um, I have a question about what you do. So sometimes Steph will tell me about a situation where someone has hurt her or I'll tell her about a fight that I had with my boyfriend or we'll, we'll share these situations. And then she makes up with her friend. But I have the friend hasn't apologized to me. So sometimes people that are very near and dear to her, I almost feel like they're my enemies because I don't trust them. Yeah. So how do you let go of those little enemy things that you have against people that haven't actually wronged you they've just wronged somebody close to you yeah because also I will take on any enemy shit like if Rachel says I need you to hate this person I'm like okay cool <laughs> mutual hating mutual. but then if she's like okay we don't hate them anymore I'm like oh now this is a little bit more difficult yeah I've spent a lot of time cultivating this hate yeah, we invest yeah. a lot don't we in mm. hate like we put a lot into it I'd, I'd nearly advise and, and it's hard for me to say this not to tell those really kind of highly emotive things to each other, which I think are, is virtually impossible when you have a kind of a sisterhood relationship because mm -hmm. you won't have that restraint because it'll be like, oh my God, wait till I tell you what happened today. <laughs> I think, I think um, say specifically in, in female friendships, they can become quite toxic sometimes and there can be rivalries. So, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of extrapolate yourself out of, if you don't have that close connection to that person and they've done a wrong to your friend, 
I'm not sure. It's very difficult, honestly, mm. to kind of be like, yeah, grand, they, they are lovely, yeah. <laughs> we'll try and navigate it somehow. You better not start stopping sharing with me, though. I want to know all the things. Nah. I mean, you know, I'll just take it that for the end of the next 20 years, you'll probably hate everybody in my life and I'll probably hate everybody in your life, but at least we'll have each other. At least we'll have each other. <laughs> Alison, thanks so much for coming Thank in. Thank you. This has been Situationships. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Situationships. Our enemies episode, which is going to go down in history as the most notorious episode ever recorded. Come back next time. This has been an Ojo production for RTE Radio 1.